Hey everyone, Joe Gonzalez here from Tobin Tuesdays, brought to you by the Manitoban 101.5 UMFM. Just wanted to say something before we start the show. Um, it's a shout out and a story and an apology all in one. Um, so a quick shout out to uh, CBC International Correspondent Nala Ayed. She was at the Manitoban offices recently. Um, I believe she was in the city for an event and to speak here at the university. Um, she subscribed to our podcast. So uh, thank you, Nala, for subscribing and um, uh, shout out to her. So I have a really, uh, I don't know if it's funny, It's maybe it's embarrassing. It's a story that I have. Um, and to give you some context, um, so every Wednesday uh, I'll finish class and, um, you know, it's, it's around lunchtime I finish class, so I'll pick up some lunch, go to the management offices where I'm based, where I work, and, you know, just sit there, you know, hang out with my coworkers and friends, and, and just, you know, it's a really relaxed vibe, right? You know, eat my lunch, whatever. Um, so this past Wednesday, um, you know, pick up my lunch, go to the office, and uh, it's not every day that, uh, you know, Nala Ayed, international correspondent, you know, well, uh, well-traveled, well um well-experienced and, uh, you know, just oh, someone who's, who's been through everything in her career. You know, you don't expect that kind of person to be there in the office. Um, and I'll admit, I was ignorant of who she was. I was ignorant of who, what, what she's done, what the work she's, she's done in, you know, um, Myanmar. She's covered the Myanmar conflict. She's covered uh, the Lebanese Civil War. She's based in London. So, you know, she's covered a bunch of stories there. Uh, I didn't know that. And so, you know, you can imagine me uh, coming into the office and uh, with my lunch. And uh, I had bought a banana that day um, because we were filming a Tobin Talkback skit that involved a banana. And I had to wear a banana costume. And I come into the office and... Um, you know, my, my managing editor and my editor-in-chief are just chilling there. And, uh, you know, I see Nala there. And, um, you know, my managing editor, she's like, okay, this is Joe. He's he's our podcast guy. And I'm just like, hey, hi, uh, what are your guys' names? <laughs> what are your guys' names? Um, and very nicely, she said, oh, I'm Nala. And I was like, hey, I'm Joe. Um, and I proceeded to kind of go on to like a bumbling sort of nonsensical act where I was like, hey, I need a knife for this banana. Anyone got a knife? Hey, would you like a banana? Politely declined. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I talked about my podcast and I, I, I showed it to Nala and I said, hey, like, you know, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify. And she said, oh, well, great. I'll I'll subscribe. And I was like, oh, awesome. Yeah, we could really use some subscribers, uh, you know, and um so she stuck around for a bit. Uh, she left. And, you know, once she left, you know, I, I was asked, uh, hey, Joe, like, did you know who that was? And I said, well, no, who, who was that? And they were like, well, that was that was Nala Ayed. And I was like, oh, oh, uh, who's not international correspondent for CBC? And I was like, ah, <laughs> ah, well, then um, I uh, I talked about bananas and I was pretty, pretty acting pretty. uh <laughs> I was, I was, was I too weird? Was what was going on? Um, so, to cap it off, uh, I also want to say, Nala, I'm sorry that uh, I didn't, uh, you know, sort of act in a way that was in, in a respectful manner, uh, that was an acknowledgement of who you are uh, as a person and also as a uh, very um, well accomplished journalist. Um, if we ever get a chance to meet again, I would love to just, you know 
maybe rewind and and sort of uh, <laughs> give a new first impression. I promise I'm not uh, this. <laughs> promise I'm not like this all the time. But um, you know, just thanks for being so nice about it. Thank you for 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 dealing with it in a in a very professional manner. I might add. And um, yeah, that's that's all I have to say. Um, you know, just to give some background, I already mentioned it, but uh, Nala used to work at the Manitoban. She, she um, you know, started there and then, you know, moved on to uh, the Canadian press, um, became international correspondent, and then, you know, got involved with CBC. Now she's based in London. Like, she's covered a lot of amazing stories. And uh, if you have a chance, definitely, definitely look her up and, you know, get a chance to read her stories because uh, after, after learning of who she was, um, I took the time to really just immerse myself in the work that she's done and uh you know to put up put it to put it in one word you know it's it's amazing it's amazing um so once again shout out to, Na shout out to Nala Ayed sorry Nala for <laughs> for um you know quote acting bananas end quote and uh yeah let's get back to business Hey everyone, you're listening to Tobin Tuesdays brought to you by the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Today is November 6th, 2018, and I'm your host, Joe Gonzalez. On today's episode, our first story includes three interviews, one with Indigenous Student Coordinator for the Nursing Students Association, River Steel Gias, one with Head of the Department of Native Studies, Carrie Miller, and one with UMSU President Jacob Sanderson. The interviews are in regards to the posters discovered on November 1st with the phrase, It's okay to be white. Our second story is a joint interview with Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon and Sasha Mark. Alyssa is executive producer of the upcoming podcast on UMFM, Minigon Dagan, and Sasha is the associate producer. Our third story features two interviews, one with Daniel Pahud, an instructor in the U of M's Physics and Astronomy Department and is in charge of the Lockhart Planetarium, and one with Brian Stack, the Vice President of the Winnipeg Chapter of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. These interviews were in regards to the Halloween-themed Astronomy Open House hosted by the U of M on October 31st. Finally, we close the show with a quick chat with Nala Ayed to talk about her career in journalism. Just a reminder before we introduce the story that Tobin Tuesdays is pre-recorded on Mondays and aired on Tuesdays. And that includes this one. So any new information that comes out on Tuesday or after the podcast was not ignored. It happened after the episode was produced. On November 1st, it was discovered by both staff and students here at the University of Manitoba that posters bearing the phrase, quote, it's okay to be white, end quote, were faxed to the Women's and Gender Studies Department, as well as placed on the walls of buildings, mainly concentrated in the Faculty of Arts, including the Asbister, Fletcher Argue, and tier buildings. The phrase in itself, while innocuous on its own, has been appropriated by the alt-right and white supremacist groups, carrying a different context. While the poster campaign began sometime in 2017, the phrase has a history within the white supremacist movement going back to 2001 when it was used as a title of a song by a white power music group, where it originated on a message board on anonymous online forum 4chan. After similar posters with the phrase, don't apologize for being white, were taken down from a Boston campus in 2017, members of the message board developed a phrase that would be, as one commenter put it, quote, linguistically hard to subvert, end quote. Plans included putting up the posters on Halloween, as to guarantee anonymity with costumes, avoiding further vandalism and using an identical, simplistic font and style. 
The idea has caught on outside of the U.S., with Canadian alt-right online communities posting the guidelines and encouraging followers to take part in the campaigning. Stickers with the phrase were found near the University of Winnipeg campus in 2017. Similar posters were found in Halifax, New Westminster, and Ottawa. President David Barnard released a statement condemning the posters. Quote, It has come to my attention that a number of racist posters have been posted on the University of Manitoba campuses as part of what is understood to be a coordinated international effort by neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups. The university unequivocally condemns this and any other racist actions. There is no tolerance for hate and discrimination, and as I made clear yesterday in my remarks at the vigil in honor of the shooting victims in Pittsburgh, we share a sense of revulsion and need to act because of what we see happening around us. The treatment of refugees the tone of anger and hatred in political discourse, the installation of corrupt regimes, a distressing number of hate crimes, terrorist attacks. As a place of higher learning, we are focused on scholarship, on the generation and passing of knowledge and, I hope, a search for wisdom. Underpinning this broad idea is a shared perspective that working together in a community is the best way to achieve this outcome. We must fight back against ignorance with knowledge, against intolerance and racism with inclusiveness and acceptance, against complacency with our words and our actions. The university has removed those posters that have been identified and security services is already investigating the incident. Anyone identifying additional locations is asked to bring them to the attention of security services as well. Yesterday evening, I hosted a visionary conversations event that focused on the responsibilities of global leadership, bringing together strong voices from a variety of perspectives. Anyone attending would have been inspired by the thoughtfulness and caring expressed by our speakers and the members of our audience, and the resolve of this community to stand together against bigotry and hate." End quote. On Sunday evening, signs reading, it's not okay to be a white supremacist, were found on some university entrances. Our news and managing editor, Malak Abbas, spoke with different members of the campus community, including Indigenous Student Coordinator for the Nursing Students Association, River Steel Gias, head of the Department of Native Studies, Carrie Miller, and UMSU President, Jacob Sanderson. Currently, I do not feel safe. I do not feel welcomed. Um, and I speak as a person who pre- is perceived as white and male. and. I cannot imagine what it's like to be female or to be a person of color who are actually being targeted. Um, and it, it extends beyond just the posters because the posters have a very simple message. And that message is correct, that yes, it's okay to be white. It's okay to be a person of color. It's okay to be yourself. But what the poster is doing is it is relaying a message that's not what's being seen. That poster was put there by neo-Nazis and white supremacists simply for the purpose of eliciting a response from people of color or minorities. And going after people who are vulnerable like that, they're race baiting. That is a form of discrimination and its main point is to recruit more neo-Nazis and to recruit more white supremacists. Because obviously in having those kinds of messages either sent to your school department by some fake fax name such as a Wyatt man, um, having it put all over your student lodge, everywhere that you walk, every, there was even one on the nursing student lounge window. It's so hard because I have to represent people. I have a duty to uphold their perspective in things. We're busy, we're working 60 hours a week. Like I'm doing 24 hours every week to be in clinicals at Health Science. Like I'm in the heart of where discrimination and oppression is happening. And then to come here to what is supposed to be a safe place and a welcoming place, I don't feel it. Um, 
and I know that we have some people like Jacob and like Amsu and um, Yumisa, they're taking a stance against it, which is nice. Um, but at this point, our municipal, our provincial, our federal governments aren't doing anything about this. They condemn it, yeah, but they're the ones who make the law. They're the ones who make the economy. Why don't they put an end to it, you know? If, if our university is not going to have the jurisdiction presented by these governments to do something about it, to actually make it illegal to perform hate crimes, then our university has that responsibility to do it. And we can send out emails that state, you know, we condemn these activities, but if you're not expelling people, if you're not firing the people who are doing this, and yes, there are teachers who are doing this too. They are the ones perpetuating and performing these forms of white supremacy. And it has to stop. There are hundreds of cameras around this campus, and you mean to tell me they didn't catch who was doing this? There were the, it's okay to be white posters. Mm -hmm. There was some talk of... The uh, cultural appropriation of the headdress. Yeah. And that individual tried to say, oh, well, I'm indigenous, so I can do that. No, you cannot. That makes it even worse, because as an indigenous person, that individual should have understood the protocol behind wearing a headdress. If they were truly given that headdress and gifted it as they claim, they would know that you don't wear a headdress while you're intoxicated. You don't wear a headdress to parties. You don't desecrate that sacred icon in the context of which he did. It's, to me, I see it as he was, what do you call that, scapegoated? They used him in order to get that cultural appropriation out this year and be like, hey, it's okay to still dress like yeah. an indigenous person and to desecrate their sacred icons. Yes. But this time they were smart and they used someone who didn't understand the protocol behind our war bonnets and our headdresses. Because, yeah, we still had someone appropriate our culture this, this year. Yeah. Except this time they were smart enough to get an indigenous person to do it so they could subliminally say, hey, it's okay because, you know. Yeah. He, he comes from that background. And it's a lot yeah. like the posters. We look at it and we see one specific thing, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to elicit that response from the masses. When we respond to it, that's the psychological warfare that they're using. They're, using, they're eliciting certain responses, humanistic responses from us. And then once we respond in a certain way, they can then point at us and be like, look at this emotionally compromised non-humanistic thing that is so disgraceful and that's why we are doing what we're doing because we are the better race we are the better whatever i haven't lived a day in the skin of a racialized person so i honestly don't understand what it would be like to live a day like that to be constantly under threat to know that everywhere you turn your back there could be a white supremacist or a nazi who has the intent on killing you and I'm quite vocal, so I could see how I am now a target to that same kind of discrimination and oppression. But I walk into a Walmart, they don't follow me because they think I'm stealing. They'll follow my siblings because they're darker than me. Yeah. They'll pull over my siblings when we're in a car if they're driving because they're dark. But I honestly don't know. I would say unify. Yeah. liquidate all of these student groups, all of these organizations, all of these coalitions. We need to show them with our masses that we are not going anywhere, that we have the jurisdiction, and that we have the authority to actually do something about it.
yeah, like, I've faced, there's been instances as well, like, even from, um, people who fill the seats in executive positions in my own association, um, be it subliminal, be it unconscious, unintentional, but there's still this sense of needing to censor people and oppress people who are bringing these conversations out. I face it quite often that I'll face invalid invalidation for the research that I perform or for the things that I say because, you know, fake news and all that nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, nonetheless, we persist anyways. Our patience and our persistence will get us to that finish line. So when I walked in, um, she, of course, had been here at 8.30. And the custodian came by right away um, and let her know that there had been posters put up um, on the first and second floor of this building and the first and second floor of Fetcher Argue. And then I talked with um, another uh, colleague over in Tier who said they'd been on the first and second floor of Tier. Mm-hmm. Um, over the course of the day, through other conversations, I heard that they were in the engineering building and possibly business. But uh, again, I've only seen the photographic evidence of what was here. Um, What the um, custodian described is that they were in the hallways, in the bathrooms, and in the greenhouse cafe over here between the buildings. I'm not sure our fax machine is set up. Right. It might have been the one across the hall in women's studies that was directed. Yeah. I was told um, that Jack, uh, is it Jack Kemper, the PR guy for the university, probably has a sense of all of the faxes that were sent or not. What the custodian described was like wall-to-wall papering of these posters in certain areas. Wow. So that's, that would not be coming out of the fax machine, but that would be you know really confronting okay. you walking into the hallway. I moved here from the States about a year ago, mm-hmm. so I've watched the rise of different forms of, of intimidation and racial prejudice there. Um, it was very disappointing to me to see it here. Um, I worried about any of our students that would have seen these messages, and not just our indigenous students, but our international students um, and and our you know, many second-generation immigrant students, you know, from here in Winnipeg. Um, I think it's a very broad um, you know, and I think it's not targeting just Indigenous students and Indigenous faculty, I guess is what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly with it coming to women's studies, there's also a, a gendered piece of it which I found particularly concerning. Yeah. Um, I talked with um, I talked with one of our faculty who who traced down the phone number at the top of the fax and said it's from the phone number was uh, from a, like a fax depot down in the United States where you oh. would you know contact by internet or what have you. Mm-hmm. So. Where it kind of came from is hard to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know I had uh, shared it with another class that I had, 
And um, one of those students wrote me later in the day with a number of the um, news reports about that. Mm -hmm. So I became aware that it was part of a broader um, sort of white supremacist neo-Nazi. And I, you know, the statement in and of itself, it's okay to be white, is innocuous. It's a statement that gets around accusations of hate speech. Yep. Um, but it's also a very defensive statement um, and not one that seems to be welcoming the dialogue uh, and conversation that I think many of us thought we had moved into as part of you know reconciliation for indigenous communities but many other broader conversations for, for many communities across Manitoba and in our, in our nation. Yeah. You know, we have all the different ethnic studies, right, in arts. Yeah. So in, in targeting all of the arts buildings to the extent that they did, yeah. that's where I'm suggesting it's, it was a wider statement. Yeah. Yeah. I would say a couple of things. At this point, we don't know if this is outside actors who came into the buildings and put these up or if it was members of our student body. Yep. Um, we have bus stops right outside the door here, which makes this hallway particularly easy mm -hmm. access for that kind of thing. Um, from what I've seen on the internet, Halloween was targeted as a key date so that you could move around in costume and not be identified. Mm -hmm. um, we did have an incident over the summer that was not widely publicized where stickers were put up yes. with negative um, slogans. Yeah. So uh, I think it's it's fair to say that you know, in a province the size of Manitoba, there certainly are some people that um, are harboring some of these very disappointing views. Um, I, I believe there was also the um, the radio piece uh, denying boarding school experience yeah. that was aired in Saskatchewan yeah. that was created by a think tank here in Manitoba. So we know that there are uh, and there's news reports on that. Yep. And so we know that there are, you know, some folks here that we need to reach out to. What I see among our students is uh, a great deal of support for the the reconciled future. And when I think of reconciliation, I do like to think of it in a, in broader terms. There certainly are specific things that we need to look at, like our history. Um, and and being truthful and honest about what that hin history um, means for all of us as Canadians. But it's not just adding Indigenous, right? It's adding the experience of all the many peoples that have come to call this place home. Um, moving here from Milwaukee, which is one of the most segregated cities in the United States, it's where the um, housing practice of redlining began. Mm -hmm. I find Winnipeg to be a much more multicultural city than the one that I left. Mm -hmm. Multicultural in its foodways, multicultural in the people that you'll meet on the street, multicultural in, in the way that, that so many of us of different um, ethnicities and faiths and languages can sit down and be comfortable with one another. Um, and, and I think there's a level on which my joy at finding that is um, is is I, it's a little more than disappointed. 
it's um, a little shocked in some ways to have this kind of an experience and have it so close to home where we work and, and where we hope to support our students. Um, I know the intent of it is to recruit for these kinds of groups. Um, there's a level on which I considered not doing interviews because, uh, you know, out of a concern that that's giving them the publicity that they crave. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's important that all of our students of diverse ethnicities and faith know that the faculty and the staff and the administration are here for them and have their back. And I think the president's message made that very clear. Yeah. So what? So. Um... I didn't ever get the chance to see most of these posters. Most were taken down either by students or by staff by the time I got to see them. But what's been reported to me is that they were in Fletcher Argue, Tier, and Isbister, and then outside the doors on that wheelchair ramp between Engineering and University Center, and then the Native Studies Office as well, and yeah, the Women and Gender Studies Office. Are those the only two that you know that got faxes? Those are the only two I know of, but I, I would not rule out there being any more. So. The first I heard of the situation was Thursday morning um, when I got a, a message from someone from UMISA um, who reached out to me about this. Um, then I, I met with them to sort of try to go over the timeline as we tried to write up our statement and take next steps. And what I had learned was that um, at some point Wednesday night, um, at least one individual, there may be multiple, uh, went and put up the posters. And then as well, fax posters to the Department of Native Studies Office, and I've now later learned also the Department of Women and Gender Studies Office. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that was on Wednesday night. Um, I, I talked to security on Thursday afternoon to see if that individual could be identified. They did get footage of the posters being put up. However, um, the person was in a Halloween costume since that was October 31st, and so they were in no way discernible. Um, so after all, all this information coming to light, that's when we um, sat down with UMISA, we crafted the statement that we did, um, and, and that's kind of where we're at now. I have heard from a minority that sort of say like, well, like how can these, you know, these are individuals um, that feel, um, so like they can't express themselves any other way, they had to go out and say like, it's okay to be white because they don't feel safe. Um, frankly, because that's something that's been across campus, um, I, I just honestly, I don't buy it. Um, I think that, this is clearly sort of a, um, a, a planned out um, issue, and this happened on the same day at a number of different um, institutions in a number of different cities. Um, I think it portrays um, a cultural issue. So, like, yes, maybe I, I would agree that, um, that like, individual students, as a direct result of this, um, doesn't mean that they're necessarily under a violent threat, but um, I don't think that it's okay for marginalized students to face this type of rhetoric Canada-wide either. And, and, and whether or not they're under an immediate threat, I don't think that that allows students to feel safe. And even if they feel safe, I, I certainly don't think it allows them to feel welcomed. And in terms of targeting, I mean, the fact that this was faxed directly to the Department of Native Studies to the point that the um, department head walked in in the morning and sees a fax machine overflowing with this on their floor um, is disgusting, and I think that whether it's part of a larger movement or not, that's clearly a, a pretty targeted choice, uh, and I, I think it's extremely troubling. At this time, um, what we've, we've reached out to the community is if anyone feels um, particularly troubled by this and is in need of any support from this, or has received any um, actions towards them as a result of this, 
um, to please reach out to us. Uh, there's a number of university resources that, that, that are, are frankly better equipped to deal with any sort of disciplinary measures or uh, interim measures than what we are able to. And, and so what we want to do is try to provide a listening ear to any students and hope that we can then link them with the proper resources. Um, at this point, there's uh, at this point, that's probably the, the, the best and only thing that we really can do in the strict interim is just to um, encourage anyone to, to reach out to us to be that listening ear and try and connect everyone that, that needs resources to those resources. Racism is an issue that is not exclusive to campuses and not exclusive to the University of Manitoba. So um, I, I definitely think that it reflects um, a broader issue for sure and, and that's why you see other campuses that have done that. But um, in, in my role as a, as a leader on this campus, um, what I especially care about is this campus and you know we are located on Treaty 1 land. We are the home of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. We have such a high percentage of international students here, almost 18%, most of which are racialized students. Um, and so it is incumbent upon us to take a leadership position, I think, within this country um, as a campus that is committed to equity, to diversity, and to inclusion, um, and to being a trailblazer, if you will, um, for that message. So I, I think that, um, that it is a broader issue, but that doesn't mean that we, we don't have a responsibility to, to take the lead on that on our own campus. It's been clear since the establishment of this country that it is okay to be white. Um, but what has been perpetuated is that it's not okay and not preferable, certainly, to be indigenous, to be black, to be racialized in any way. And so to go around defending this by saying, well, it is okay to be white is frankly a redundant, unnecessary, and hurtful statement because there are indigenous communities on campus, um, black communities on campus, communities on campus from all different races, Muslim communities on campus um, that, that often talk to us about not feeling safe, not feeling equal, not feeling heard on campus. Um, and so I want our campus not to be one where we're, we're, we're scared to celebrate the diversity and inclusion and the type of people that we have on this campus. I want that to be a point of pride for this campus. On October 29th, the first four episodes of a new podcast series titled Minigon Dagan, The Good Voice, were released in partnership with UMFM. Quoting the podcast page, quote, Minogon Dagan is about reconciliation. Throughout the series, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people will share personal stories, ideas, research and expertise, and to create a new story together as we walk towards reconciliation. We have produced this podcast in partnership with the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Engagement with assistance from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the University of Manitoba Students' Union. Each episode attempts to explore a theme, engaging in discussions that seek a common experience that will start to bring us to a place of understanding, end quote. The podcast includes Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, an Anishinaabe two-spirit comedian-producer who is executive producer of Benagondagan. Sasha Mark, of Métis descent, is a Canadian comedian most recognized for being APTN's The Laughing Drum. He is associate producer of the podcast. Finally, Tim Fontaine, former CBC journalist and current documentary producer for APTN, is the host of Minigondagan. He is Anishinaabe from the Saguing First Nation. Our news reporter, Shauna Matthews, sat down for a quick chat with Alyssa and Sasha to discuss the podcast. Minogondagan is available for streaming on the UMFM website. You can also subscribe to the podcast and catch the next batch of episodes to be released on Apple Podcasts. Well, the premise of the podcast is exploring reconciliation through an Indigenous perspective and um, just sort of getting all different voices um, across the board heard 
and um, having all their truths out there. One thing that uh, we wanted to show is that, and the things that I'm learning right now is that uh, people have a different perspective of what reconciliation means to them and to their own community. And um, right now, uh, I am learning that it is not very black and white. We're all living yeah. in a gray area when it comes to reconciliation. And I think just, um, you know, having these conversations, uh, I think that I, I want to showcase that, um, you know, reconciliation affects different communities in different kinds of ways. We, we talked to some people who are just like very locally involved in the community yeah. and then we had some big people who have also taken a part of the podcast who are like, uh, you know, nationally known, you know, mm. performers yeah. or leaders in the communities. So we've had... Um, we've had Tantu Cardinal, um, David Robertson, Lee Miracle, uh, some of the <clears throat> Don Kelly, pardon me? Howie Miller. Howie Miller, yeah, he's going to be on the next round. Oh, on the next one. Right. Round of uh, releases. Um, and then we've had, you know, some local people like mm-hmm. Jerry Barrett, uh, Stephen Richard, Adeline Bird, Adeline Bird, um, Don Levan, Brielle, yeah, yeah. I think right now some people when they look at, you know, reconciliation and they don't have, you know, any kind of familiar clue of, you know, what that is or what that looks like. Um, I think it, I, I would want it to be like a digestible approach to understanding what reconciliation is and understanding, you know, uh, um, indigenous issues that indigenous people face mm-hmm. um, that people aren't really aware of. I think those are some things that, you know, we want to bring into light. Mm-hmm. Having different perspectives out there um, and just showing that not every Indigenous person thinks in the same way and has the same ideas, same solutions, same, you know, problems. Um, and just having a multitude of Indigenous voices heard, you know, from across Turtle Island, I think, mm-hmm. is, the, is the major goal. And for people to be able to listen to this and you know, even if they can relate to one voice mm-hmm. or learn from one voice, um, I think we would have reached our goal if we have um, if we have people who are able to learn and to connect through the podcast. Mm-hmm. A Halloween-themed astronomy open house was hosted by the U of M and the Winnipeg chapter of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada on October 31st. The open houses hosted in University College, our university initiative, and are hosted on the last Wednesday of every month. Astronomy open houses typically begin with an hour-long presentation, after which attendees can go up to the Lockhart Planetarium, located in University College, to observe objects of interest. Meanwhile, the Winnipeg chapter of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada hold monthly meetings every second Friday of the month at the U of M Robert Schultz Lecture Theatre. Both the monthly open house in University College and the monthly meeting in the Robert Schultz Lecture Theatre are campaigns to try and pique the interest of those who may be looking to explore their curiosities in astronomy. No prior experience in astronomy is needed to attend these events. Our news reporter, David Zarangi, spoke with Daniel Pahud, an instructor in the U of M's Physics and Astronomy Department and is in charge of the Lockhart Planetarium. She discussed the monthly open houses. David also spoke with Brian Stack, the Vice President of the Winnipeg Chapter of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, to discuss the monthly meetings. The next Astronomy Open House will be held on November 28th. There will be no open house in December due to renovations. Open house sessions will resume in January 2019.
Uh, so my name is Danielle Pahood. I'm an instructor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy, uh, and I also am in charge of the Lockhart Planetarium, which is the planetarium here on campus. Uh, and so um, for years, we've been doing open houses in the planetarium once a month. Um, it got shut down in 2017. Um, and so for renovations and updating. And so in the meantime, we're doing these open houses in the classroom. Uh, and so we've been doing this format of open house uh, start since January. Uh, and so they've grown in popularity and attendance, which is awesome. Uh, and so it's just uh, a talk or two from a professional astronomer or grad student. Um, and then we invite everybody to come out, so students, the general public, families, yeah. things like that. Our topics vary, and so for most of them we aim to make them accessible to uh, people with any background, so no astronomy background at all. And so for these open houses you don't need to be a member, there's no membership, there's no, um, it's a separate thing from the RASC, um, so this is a university initiative. Um, and so ideally there's no background involved or no background required. In the past two months we were lucky, um, unfortunately not now, but uh, when we were able to open up the dome we pointed at objects of interest, a ring nebula, we've done Orion's nebula, and so um, you know, there, there are city lights, but it's still pretty incredible what you can see from the city. Yeah. So other than the open house, can people sort of come by? Yeah, um, so people can stop in. Yeah. Uh, so the planetarium is still under construction. It'll be open, um, we're aiming for November 2019. Okay. So at least a year. It'll probably be longer than that. Um, but for the open houses, for these people can come and go as they please. Um, and then for the observing, yeah, we anybody can go up to the roof and look through the telescopes. So we have a couple people pointing it at things, and then everybody gets a turn to look through the oh. through the telescope. Alrighty, what are the yeah. hours that people can come by? So the uh, the observatory is open immediately after the talk, mm. and so it usually starts at about eight. Okay. Um, and then it goes until people are tired, basically. Yeah. So last month, I think we were here until 10.30, just looking at things. Um, Jupiter and Saturn were both visible, so hmm. uh, we pointed those. And the open house is it's kind of similar to our group, right? So we'll talk about a little bit of astronomy, right? Uh, they'll deal with topics. Uh, very depends upon the student that wants to deal with the topics. But then you have the opportunity, if it's a clear night, you can go view something through the telescope upstairs. Oh, not tonight. Yeah, Whereas uh, an RSC member, right, you don't have to be a member, you can always come down if you want and check our meeting. Okay. It's free. Right. Okay. The second Friday of every month? Every second day, yeah. yeah. It's at 92 Dysart uh, Street. Mm -hmm. So why don't you come down? And we can talk more. Um, and then you can just get familiar with like, what we talked about. Because again, we have a beginner session right. in the very first part of it. Then we talk about what's up, what's new, and. Uh, so any other topic that someone wants to bring up, and then we have a latter half after a break mm. uh, about deeper topics, like something like maybe dark matter. Uh, it could be someone's uh, maybe an astronaut, right? Or maybe someone who wants to talk about maybe the history of astronomy um, and so forth. It all, it all varies, right? Mm. But you can always, you're welcome to come down and, and check us out, right? And if you do become a member, um, then you have access to our community facility, right? And I'll show you how to use a telescope. We have dark skies. And then you can mingle a bit more uh, with the other uh, members and, and uh, gain more experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about it is you learn at your own pace, right? Okay. You know, no one's going to, no one's going to, sorry, 
no one's going to bug you, no one's going to make fun of you about what you know or don't know or anything like that, right? Um, then that's where we come, like we have the, the barbecue, we want to mingle a little bit more socially, right? Uh, the star party is a great way to bring a telescope, right? And have someone show you to use it or use theirs, right? Because there are some people there with like really big telescopes and, you know, save you the hassle, right? Yeah. And, and view it. Uh, of course, we also have this email list that we have. And if you become a member, you're on it, and uh, then you can post questions. You got some questions you need, want to know, or you need some help with something, then yeah, you know, someone will, will answer it. And of course, that's where we have members' night, right? So if you're new, right, totally new, and you're unfamiliar with the sky, and then I'll show you the sky, right? We'll show you what objects you can look at, and give you kind of like a little tour of it. Uh, we do have another one. Um, Jerry is a really good one, who. <clears throat> Maybe at Oconomic Marshes in our good event, if he uses out there, but it's a clear sky, and then he'll give you a little tour of the night sky, right? Different constellations, different galaxies, maybe history of it a little bit, depending upon what he wants to talk about. Um, he gives you a little more familiar. That's more for a general public kind of thing, right? For general public event, it's just general. We bring our telescopes and we'll just point something of interest to the general public. Okay. It could be anything. And uh, it, very rarely, though, like, you know, we, like, we try to do Mars, right? For example, Mars was at the closest point yeah. at the end of July, but of course it turned out to be bad because, you know, the weather wasn't cooperating, and then next thing you know, in August, the smoke, right? Mm. We had a problem yeah. with the smoke from BC or Calgary, right? Yeah. Like, fear with it. So again, uh, those public events were aimed for the general public, right? We bring our telescopes, we'll show them something of interest, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, what's out there, the moon, for example. And if it's a really good clear skies, and then we'll maybe do a Andromeda galaxy, maybe a double star cluster or something like that. Again, we'll try and give you something that you can look through a telescope, right? And you don't have to be an expert to see it. The only problem is that we have is announcing it, right? Because we like to announce it. Right. Right, we like to announce our meetings, you know, we do this every second Friday, come, come see us, right? Uh, while we're doing a public event at Old Comic Marsh in a couple of weeks, actually, three weeks, right? Come check us out there, right? We bring telescopes, uh, it's a little further for some people probably, but we're there. Yeah. Right? Why is that a problem, people don't typically... It's, it's a little you don't further north, right? Right. So I don't know if, if people want to travel all the way out oh, there. Yeah. And then, of course, what's and it's usually at night as well. It starts at 7, oh. and it goes on to 10. Hmm. So uh, Jacques is his name. He's the interpreter there. We help him out. And our goal is, like, uh, we'll maybe help him with the presentation, hmm. right? He does his own. Very, very simple ones. Hmm. Nothing complicated, right? Nothing crazy. And then we'll have telescopes kicking up upstairs. Like, there's a three-level building. So we have telescope for the general public. Again, we'll point something of interest, right? Nothing fancy. Okay. And, then, and then Jerry might do a little tour of the sky. Again, we'll try and promote as much astronomy as we can, but nothing nothing big. It's for something to everyone to enjoy, right? We're not going to talk about deep physics that, you know, you need a degree or something like that. Yeah, no. No, it's aimed for the general public. And, and hopefully the objects that we do show you will inspire you, right? That's the goal. The yeah. goal is to come out there, have a dark sky, and have some people presenting it to you. Right. And learn. And learn. Yeah. Steps, yeah. Some, like our last one was, uh, uh, Dennis did a little topic about uh, dark skies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, how lights are affecting the dark skies. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and of course, Jacques would do his usual kid stuff, mm-hmm. right? The, the scope of the, the whole solar system. So everyone would carry like a little piece and or a balloon to represent the sun and show you the scale of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's all aimed for the general public, and we're hoping, like you said, trying yeah. to inspire you. Right. Right. So for those that listened since the beginning of this episode, I began with a quick shout-out, story, and apology to CBC International Correspondent Nala Ayed. Well, our news and managing editor had a chat with Nala, and among other things, she talked about her start in journalism, her experience with the Manitoban, and how she eventually became an international correspondent. But I, like you, again, I also had like an interest in writing all, all through my life. And I, if I look back now, I laugh that I didn't notice this, you know, before I decided to be a scientist. Um, because it, all the signs were there. Like in, in high school, I was at the, I was somehow gravitated to the student newspaper there. Like, you know, a little tiny photocopied thing got called Vox Populi. And I used to write for that. And I'm like, how did I, why did I do that? I don't even remember making the decision. It just seems like a natural part of being. And I should have just seen all the signs. But again, at 18, you don't know this. Right. So, so then, like you, I saw an ad in the paper, and I thought they wanted a news reporter. And somehow, again, I just walked over and said I'd like to be that news reporter, and I got paid like a tiny amount of money to write two articles a week. Yep. And uh, it, you know, my as I started spending more and more time at the Manitoba, my parents were starting to get concerned, and my dad, I remember him kind of assuring, trying to reassure himself, this is just a hobby, right? And I'm like, yeah. To Manitoba, I'm sure you have the same experience. Like, I loved my time there. In fact, it it really kind of rivals every other journalistic experience I've had. Like, it was just so collegial and, like, this, you know, common purpose and working late into the night. Like, I don't know if you still have production night or whatever, but... Yeah. yeah, and we would, you know, back back then we seriously, shocking to say, but we used to use paper and glue everything, you know, print it all out and glue it all on cardboard and take it down to the printers. Yeah, and so yeah, it was just such a fantastic experience. So I fell in love, and I like, okay, I need to make decisions. But I, I started my master's in genetics, just to finish the story. And um, what I started to do was freelance outside of the Manitoban. Okay. So I I wrote a couple of pieces for the Free Press. I think I did a CBC radio piece and my fantastic supervisor who was very tough, she's gone now, her name was Phyllis McAlpine, came to me and she took me on and she's like a world-renowned geneticist. So I was quite privileged to be in her lab because I decided, well, I'm not going to, I don't have the marks to be a doctor, I'll do my master's in genetics. And she said to me, she saw one of my articles. And it was her, actually, who pushed me to make a decision. She she brought me in. I was wearing my white lab coat. And she said, Nala, you can't do both of these things. you got to choose. Wow. You, you, can't, you can't be working in my lab and being a journalist on the side. So she forced the choice, which was great, because it, it, it pushed me to apply to journalism schools, and I got in, and the rest is history. There was some, again, like little crumbs along the way, like I'd gone and done something at a lab, again, another good lab in BC and I think it was after this conversation and I was like what am I going to do and that's where I got the idea like you <laughs> um the guy says why don't you do science journalism I'm like hey that can combine my two parts and, yeah. and in fact when I applied to Carlton that's how I applied I all my clippings were about science journalism I'd written a whole bunch of science pieces and and that's how I got into Carlton you know on the premise of caring about science journalism but Really, I haven't done it since. <laughs> yeah. 
But to be honest with you, I when I started journalism, I wasn't necessarily thinking that I'd like to be a foreign correspondent. I mean, I was interested because I watched, you know, the old the old guys like Don Murray and Patrick Brown, probably names you don't know yet, or you don't know because you're too young. I don't. <laughs> but like I watched, yeah, yeah, they're all, they've been gone for a while. But I used to watch them and say, man, that'd be such a great job. Yeah. But um, but you know, I it wasn't kind of my. It wasn't my like I wasn't gunning for that, um, and I what I what I did do when I was working, and I always advise younger journalists to do, is I did use my limited knowledge of um, of the Middle East to kind of uh, and the world because I was interested in everything, right? All international stuff I was reading right. all the time, and is I used that as a launching point to do stories in Canada about you know about you know whether it's diaspora communities or. If there's a big story abroad, can we do a local story that kind of echoes it? Um, you know, those kinds of things. But no, I like in, I just wanted to be a journalist. And so I went to Carleton and I ended up five years very lucky. My very first job ended up working on Parliament Hill yeah. with Canadian Press, which was fantastic training. Right. In fact, my first taste of international was with them. When, when November 11th happened, or September 11th happened, I pushed really hard and I wanted to go to Afghanistan and I did. But, you know, prior to that, when Kretchen, you know, the best prime minister went to Middle East, I lobbied really hard that I should go and they did send me. I used to travel with the prime minister like regularly, but um, specifically his big Middle East tour, I was like, you know, I'm the expert here. I should really go. And they, so I started kind of dipping my feet in and eventually when Afghanistan happened, the war, I, convinced them that I should go and so I did that was my very first taste of it and that's when I knew I spent like three months there the first time I went that's when I knew this, I want to do this I really want to do this so from then on in I started to kind of keep an eye on possibilities of how how can I do it full-time so and finally it did happen when the opportunity came when it was so obvious that Iraq was gonna was in the sights, sights of America and so I started kind of thinking about how do I get myself there and you know through colleagues and friends and connections sort of talked to CBC and I talked to many newspapers and kind of built up a a group of clients who were willing to buy my articles and my pieces mostly pieces I was mostly a print reporter and so I moved to moved to Amman and then I moved basically moved to Baghdad before the war so there you go It was an opening. It was an opportunity. There was a big story coming and we had warning, right? So. And that should do it for today's episode of Tobin Tuesdays, brought to you by the Manitoban Hero 101.5 UMFM. The interviews you heard today were provided by Malak Abbas, Shauna Matthews, and David Zarangi. The intro music and the transition music were produced by Kenny Ingram. And the entire episode was produced and hosted by me, Joe Gonzalez. Just a reminder that all interviews and stories you heard today are available in this week's issue of The Manitoban, available on newsstands tomorrow, as well as online in the coming days. And just another reminder that we are officially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so search for Tobin Tuesdays to catch up on old episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a future one. Um, Nala Ayat, subscribe to us, so once again, thank you, Nala. Uh, Maybe you should follow her lead, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, that should do it for today. On behalf of The Manitoban, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Peace. Peace.